Hashtag SAFM Talking Point. Well, let's get into our Africa Unlocked segment. Today, we're looking at the Angolan elections that took place on Wednesday. Dr. Ross Harvey is Director of Research at Good Governance Africa. Dr. Harvey, good morning. Good morning, Cathy. Let's look at um, this race, this election race. Of course, going into it, it was described as being one of those that will be very closely fought with the MPLA. They've been, uh, you know, a formidable force in Angola being in power now um, for close on five decades. And of course, the the contenders, UNITA, Total Independence of the National Union, this is, uh, for the Total Independence of Angola. Let's look at where we are this morning following that election yesterday. Yeah, so it's a, it's a fascinating election in that uh, certainly prior to election day, this would have been uh, expected to be the most competitive uh, Angolan election yet post-2002 when the civil war ended. Uh, UNITA polled uh, ahead of uh, MPLA on uh, on intern poll. Uh, however, uh, many people expressed reservations about voting uh, and, and what they would vote for if they did vote. And so that gives us some indication that there is still, unfortunately, an ambience of fear. Uh, and unfortunately, the Lorenzo government uh, post or Santos has uh, despite talking about opening up the civil society space, has actually unfortunately worked to uh, essentially reverted to repression, uh, especially of, of youth protests. Uh, but I, I believe that uh, the MPLA uh, in data collected thus far uh, are indicated to be ahead. And I think, unfortunately, we, we could uh, expect that, given that uh, they control the Electoral Commission, they also control the courts, uh, and they're still a, a highly securitized outfit, uh, and that that, that is uh, unfortunately embedded in in the DNA of the MPLA. And even though Unita uh, has a, a much higher uh, chance uh, in this election of offending the MPLA, I think we need to be aware of uh, some of the, the real politics dynamics that are at play. Dr. Harvey, I'm, I'm having a bit of difficulties with this line to you. It's not great. I'm going to ask the team just to try and redial you. Perhaps we can bring you up on a different line. We're talking about the Angolan elections uh, that were held yesterday. As you heard from Dr. Harvey, um, you know, going into the elections, it, it was supposed to be a, a very hotly contested race. But uh, looking at some of the early polling results that are coming in, it looks like um, the the People's Movement for Liberation, uh, for the liberation of Angola, uh, is certainly holding what seems like a strong lead. We'll get into the political environment under which these elections took place. In fact, we'll also talk about the number of parties um, that that took place in this election, and if, in fact, that is an indication of uh, the political environment. Uh, Ross, I understand you're back up on the line. Can you hear me loud and clear now? I am. Oh, yeah, I'm back. Sorry about that. that. That's a much better line. Thank you. So, so let's talk about um, the political organizations that were part of this contest, right? Uh, eight parties, but you are raising concerns of an MPLA that is very much still in control of the political environment. 
Yeah, absolutely. So in the end, there are two, it, it's a two horse race. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the, uh, you, the the coalition of opposition parties uh, that had attempted to form was not allowed to register as one umbrella on the, the ballot box. And so you need to uh, essentially, uh, would we expect, capture the votes of, of those who would perhaps vote for, for other parties. Um, but it's a race between the MPLA and UNITA when it comes down to it. Um, and I think that what we need to understand is that the, the MPLA, as you rightly indicated at the beginning, is, is the incumbent party. They've been in power in Angola since independence in 1975. And uh, because of a 27-year civil war, which only ended in 2002, they're a highly securitized machine. Uh, they also control all the apparatus of state. And so they have what uh, political scientists call a uh, very deep incumbency advantage. Uh, and even though UNITA has shown um, tremendous electoral prospects uh, in, in ways that they haven't in previous elections, uh, I think we must understand the real politic of the, the very nature of the MPLA. Uh, controlling elections is unfortunately part of, of that DNA. Uh, and and even though uh, early polls indicated that uh, UNITA were polling far ahead of, uh, sorry, that UNITA was polling far ahead of MPLA, uh, I think that uh, we, we shouldn't be surprised uh, to learn that the MPLA is ahead. When we look at UNITA and why it is that it has been such a, a strong offering for the people of Angola, um, the, the role of, of, of civil society organizations and voices coming together under that umbrella, what do you think that has meant? Yeah, so certainly the, the civil society space has opened up somewhat uh, since, uh, since Dos Santos left power in 2017 and Lorenco has made uh, commitments both to restoring uh, Angola's economy, uh, trying to diversify, trying to tackle corruption, uh, trying to reduce their over-reliance on, on oil. Uh, at the same time, it's uh, it, it's been a disappointment. He did uh, inherit a country in, in, in a very difficult economic position. It's slightly better now because of, of higher oil prices. Uh, but it, it is also the case that uh, with an increasing, uh, increasingly vocal youth uh, population uh, and and civil society, uh, and a strengthened UNITA, largely because of the ascendancy of its current leader, Aldoberto Costa Jr., uh, who's a very charismatic figure, has been in UNITA for a very long time, seems to have had both a, a charismatic and um, uniting effect on, on the party. Uh, and so... UNITA uh, is appealing to uh, a proportion of the electorate which uh, has grown up uh, without any recollection of the civil war. So many people pitching up at the polls today will have been born post-2002. And so that's the one thing that's really significant about these elections uh, that that is obviously different to previous elections in Angola. All right, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Ross Harvey after this.
We're looking at the Angolan elections that took place yesterday. Dr. Ross Harvey is a director of research at Good Governance Africa. Ross, I want to pick up on uh, the issue that you had raised about the age of the voting population. In fact, it was part of the reason why those that were predicting a a different outcome were saying that, uh, you know, this could well be the end of um, an era in as far as this liberation movement is, is concerned. What do we say now that things are beginning to indicate that that may not have been the case? How do we begin to understand that the voting choices that um, many of still of, of these young people still would have made? Yeah, so I think it's important that we understand the, the DNA of the, the MPLA. Also, we must understand that in the region uh, with, uh, with someone like uh, Hichilema having come to power in Zambia, uh, that incumbent parties across the region are increasingly nervous. Uh, and the MPLA being uh, the, the custodians, if you like, of a highly securitized state uh, would be under, uh, under no illusion as to the importance of using their incumbency advantage, their control over the levers or the apparatus of state to, uh, to ensure Uh, an electoral outcome in their favor. Uh, And so it might well be the case that young people would, uh, you know, in in conditions of complete freedom and fairness, uh, would would have voted the MPLA out of power. Uh, I think it's reasonable to expect, given the real politic of the situation, uh, that that the MPLA would not allow for uh, total freedom and fairness. Uh, in this election. So am I suggesting rigging? Uh, certainly there are commentators very close to the ground in Angola and who have uh, done deep research uh, on the country and uh, risked their, their lives uh, to uh, to understand the nature of the political landscape who would say that the MPLA uh, would certainly not hold back from rigging the election. Mm. And, and I suppose, you know, when we talk about election rigging, uh, Ross, then the, 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 the next question that almost comes to mind is how do you even begin to prove such such an allegation? And I wonder if they, if they particular points or even incidents, whether in this election or historically, that point to how the system may have been interfered with or how the rigging may have happened? Yeah, so in fact, uh, there's a great book by uh, Professor Nick Cheeseman called How to Rig an Election. Uh, and there are various tactics that are typically employed. Uh, there are ghost voters on the roll. Uh, there's no transparency around the actual tallying. Uh, the electoral commission uh, is typically infiltrated by uh, by party uh, loyalists, uh, and in this case, uh, it's it's fairly clear that uh, the MPLA uh, have control over the uh, national Ele- electoral commission in Angola, uh, and so there are various things that one can do to try and counter this, but all of them uh, necessarily entail uh, transparent monitor uh, transparent observation. Uh, and perhaps parallel counting. And there has been suggestion, you know, there have been civil society groups um, perhaps affiliated with UNITA suggesting that they would uh, be doing parallel tallies uh, to demonstrate that, in fact, the uh, the tallying of votes uh, uh, reported by state media 
uh, were in fact inaccurate. Uh, and of course, if you need to uh, intend to contest the results of the elections, they're not uh, completely out yet. Of course, that'll take some time. Uh, but if they do intend to contest the elections, then they would have to have uh, some kind of evidence with which to suggest that the MPLA uh, had had been blatantly rigging the election. The, the other big issue, Ross, is um, the question of democracy. And when we even analyze the, the elections that have taken place in Angola, should we be doing it through the lens of a democratic framework? I mean, can we say that Angola is a democratic country right now? Well, you know, the short answer is no, but it is a complex question because mm. uh, the MPLA would like to position themselves as being a democratic party. And so, of course, even uh, since the end of the war, they have tried to position themselves in that way. Uh, certainly, that's the, the face that they would like to paint. But of course, the reality is that uh, they, they, are a, uh, they, they are an incumbent party, a liberation movement, uh, which endured 27 years of, of civil war. And that's power that uh, they are not uh, likely to easily uh, relinquish. However, we should judge them according to the standards that they set for themselves. Uh, so when, when we talk about the lens through which we're analyzing this, um, I think, you know, it's important to understand that uh, there isn't necessarily an external imposition uh, of of what it should be like. But if the ruling party uh, states that they are running free and fair elections, and that's their understanding of a democratic state, which they purport to be, even if in reality they aren't, uh, then we should judge them according to their own stated criteria. When it comes to the investigations that have been conducted into uh, corruption in Angola, some of those that um, would have affected the, the previous leader, this is Dos Santos, and the work that Lorenco has done, do you think that that would have gained him some um, points in as far as the, the electorate is concerned? Uh, yeah, it's a great question, and it depends who you read. But uh, certainly, it would appear that the promises that Lorenko has made, uh, and some of the the uh, the steps that he has taken, for instance, uh, trying to recover stolen money and and going after uh, two of Dos Santos' children, uh, his daughter Isabel and uh, his his son Jose Eduardo uh, Filomino. These these are, are high-profile moves, uh, but in fact, they've, they've caused an enormous amount of division within the MPLA. Uh, and the sense uh, that I get from on the ground is that young people are not impressed. Uh, they, they have seen the fruits of uh, a government that's been in power at least post-2002, uh, receiving huge oil rents that accrued to a tiny minority of leaders uh, who then extended patronage with those oil rents uh, to to loyalists. Uh, and you still have uh, more than half of the population living on under $2 a day. Uh, and so uh, a median youth population uh, is not impressed by those kind of uh, <laughs> those kind of stats. Uh, and their own lives have not been improved uh, under a Lorenko presidency that promised to bring change. Uh, and so 
uh, you know, obviously the MPLA is aware of that, uh, and and so that that while they might anticipate an increased vote, uh, an increased vote for UNITA, they uh, they would have every, every interest in suppressing. Uh, the true results. All right. Uh, Ross will continue the conversation after the latest 11.30 news headlines. Mpo Setole is standing by. We're staying with our Africa Unlocked segment, reflecting on the Angolan elections and uh, probably also what's next for the country. Dr. Ross Harvey is Director of Research at Good Governance Africa. You know, Ross, when I look at Angola and just how rich the country is in minerals, right? Biggest exports include crude oil, gas, diamonds. It seems to me that there's no reason why the country should be in the economic situation that it faces itself today, that it finds itself in today. Yeah, absolutely correct, Kathy. Uh, and in fact, there's a fantastic book on this very subject called Magnificent and Beggarland by Ricardo Soros Dolavera. Uh, and it documents uh, very skillfully the, the way in which uh, this huge oil wealth uh, has created, uh, in many respects, white elephant infrastructure because uh, crude oil exports allowed Angola to, to strike oil for infrastructure deals with the Chinese. Uh, and, and this was a kind of continuation of, of arms for infrastructure, uh, uh, sorry, oil for arms deals that, uh, that the Angolan government had had with, uh, with Russia prior to uh, 2002, uh, in, in which um, the USSR was helping the MPLA to win the war against UNITA. Uh, but since 2002, there's been this uh, cash bonanza uh, oil windfall rent, and that those could certainly have been used to transform the the country, uh, and those rents could have been used uh, to uh, build infrastructure that would have helped to diversify the economy. It would have helped to improve agricultural yields. It would have helped to distribute agricultural products. Uh, would have helped to ensure uh, the growth of industries associated with oil and diamonds and coffee production, for instance. Uh, for instance, uh, and the, the same problem afflicts places like Nigeria. Why, why, are, why are there no refineries uh, converting uh, crude oil into uh, into alternative products such as refined fuel or, or anything else associated with petrochemicals? Those kind of investments uh, don't even appear to have been uh, among any kind of economic plan. Uh, similarly, uh, Angola has got itself into an enormous amount of debt, 19 billion owed to China alone. Uh, and so uh, th- this is the situation that uh, Lorenko would say he inherited. Um, but one must also recognize that he's been part of the MPLA infrastructure for a long time, although he was fired in 2003 uh, and then came back uh, into the MPLA apparatus around uh, 2014. So. Uh, the, the short answer to your question is that it's it's a great pity that Angola has not capitalized on uh, the windfall opportunity that it has had over the last 20 years uh, to improve the lives of ordinary Angolans who, like I said, still live uh, on under two US dollars a day. Are you anticipating that beyond this election, we are going to see more organizing um, from ordinary Angolans about the state of the economy and living conditions? 
yes, I absolutely do think so. I think uh, if you consider the youth dynamic, especially, uh, and the way in which the MPLA is is treated with contempt by the youth who care nothing for the war narrative uh, or for the fact that the MPLA brought about peace, the kind of image that uh, Dos Santos projected about himself as as a man of peace, uh, brought in a peace dividend for Angola and so on. Young people living in Rwanda don't care uh, about that kind of narrative. What they see uh, is a handful of extremely wealthy individuals and a majority of people still living in poverty. Uh, and they themselves have very few economic prospects ahead of them. Uh, their educational prospects alone are still extremely poor. Uh, and so I do think that one will start to see more organizing. Uh, I do also think that opposition parties will start to uh, become smarter. And you know, the MPLA will likely continue in the mold that it has. You know, one of the things, pardon me, that is quite unique about the MPLA uh, is that uh, they they did make changes. Uh, Dos Santos, in my view, became an electoral liability to the party. I think there were internal moves to help him move on peacefully in 2017. He was meant to stay on as uh, the president of the party after he stepped down as president of the country. Um, <laughs> that they essentially uh, reneged on that agreement. Uh, and Dos Santos went gently into that good night and, and re retired to Spain. Uh, so the, the MPLA will try uh, everything they can to retain power, uh, but their record thus far, I think, has, has probably uh, laid a rod for their own back. Uh, and I, I think that we will start to see changes, just as we're seeing uh, in South Africa and just as we, we saw in Zambia. Uh, I think that the tide... Uh, will will eventually turn. There's only so long uh, that repression uh, outweighs uh, <laughs> reform. You know, the, the, typically incumbent parties uh, of the MPLA type tend to see repression as less costly than reform. Uh, and I think that they will increasingly see that uh, that is unsustainable, especially after the, if the oil price starts to uh, starts to drop again, which it is likely to do beyond the end of this year. All right. Uh, let me uh, take this question sent through by one of our listeners on uh, the WhatsApp line. Good morning, Cathy, and good morning to your uh, analyst. I wanted to ask how much influence uh, does Portugal, the former colonizer, have in Angola uh, in today uh, as well? Do, do Portugal, their former colonizer, still have an influence in the political uh, and economic uh, uh, decisions uh, that are made, or even in these elections, or broadly in the society of Angola? Do they still have an influence in terms of the economy? Do they still control the economy? Just tell me, uh, does the Port Portugal have an influence in how Angola is at the moment, or the minute they left Angola, then their influence stopped there. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you. It's very interesting to also see that Macron is going to um, Algeria, a former colony of France. So these European countries seem to still have an influence on their former colonies. Thank you. Yeah, really great question there, Ross. Yeah, great. Cathy, I don't have a full answer for you, unfortunately. But uh, what is interesting historically is that uh, Portugal left Angola only in uh, in 74, shortly after the death of Antonio Salazar, who was the d dictatorial leader of the uh, 
of the Portuguese Communist Party. And one of the things that Dos Santos did when he came into power was made sure that uh, the, the, the um, Portuguese National Oil Company essentially retained its structure and its expertise. So Dos Santos made sure that he retained all of the Portuguese expertise, at least in, in oil production that he could. However, um, most Portuguese uh, fled the country during the, uh, during the last days of the anti-colonial war. Uh, and, and so left the country uh, really without, uh, without any skill. In terms of uh, influence today, uh, it's, it's probably largely through trade and finance rather than explicit overt influence. Uh, you know, Portuguese banks, uh, of course, have been involved uh, in, um, in <laughs> receiving money from uh, Sonangal subsidiaries. Uh, and that's that's all uh, very well documented uh, in in books like uh, the Looting Machine, uh, and and reports uh, into uh, the, the kind of relationships that uh, Sonangol entered into with uh, with the um, the Queensway Syndicate, uh, the Chinese International Fund. Uh, so, yeah, the 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 overt influence it's it's not the same as the kind of relationship between France and its former colonies. Mm. But 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 yeah. but when we talk then about foreign interests that um, sometimes even the MPLA is colluding with when it comes to these networks of patronage around its oil resources, which of those relationships would you say are more explicit? Uh, yeah, the Chinese relationships are a lot more explicit in this respect. Mm. Uh, so between 2004 and 2007, there were a number of, of deals with uh, with Chinese oil companies in particular uh, that were struck in Angola. There were similar companies um, who were involved in the, the auctioning of Nigerian uh, oil bids, and uh, those those deals struck in Angola, but not in Nigeria. Um, and of course, China, uh, I think largely because of MPLA uh, stability uh, and uh, the the efficacy of Sonangol uh, over against uh, you know N Nigerian politics was a lot more unstable and the, the National Petroleum Company was uh, a lot less efficient and effective than than Sonangol. So China has struck up a very fruitful relationship, at least as far as it's concerned, with Angola, and I would say that they are uh, by far and away the the strongest uh, external uh, international player in terms of influence in Angola. All right, Dr. Ross Harvey, thanks for your time this morning, Director of Research at Good Governance Africa. And of course, a vote counting then continues in earnest in Angola. Uh, we'll have to wait and see when exactly those results will be officially declared.